Can you even imagine how hard it must have been for them? How excruciating it must have been for them to admit as they did those who were the the religious know-it-alls, those who had all of the answers to finally have to fess up and admit as they did to Jesus those embarrassing, somewhat surprising words We don't know. Jesus had turned around the question on them and they had to admit they didn't know because it was true. They they didn't know the right answer to the question because their hardened hearts had not had the Holy Spirit reveal the truth to them. And so it was true what they said. They, They didn't know. And this exchange also underscores for us how difficult unbelief is, how a hardened heart, how obstinate unbelief is, and, and how it is not easy by any stretch of, of the imagination for an unbelieving heart to be converted, to be won over to the truth, because it isn't interested in the truth. A hardened heart, a heart that is unbelieving, is not not interested in having its mind changed, but prefers to stay in the dark, prefers to remain blind, prefers not to have, again, its mind changed. Unbelief is a stubborn thing. And not only did those who were opposing Jesus and, and raising this question, it's not as if they just didn't know the answer. They weren't even interested in finding the answer. As they, they engaged with Jesus, this became abundantly clear. That they were not interested in, in what he had to say. And that's very relatable for non-believers today. They were content to to stay in the middle ground, in limbo in a sense. And so are those that would claim to be non-believers or unbelievers today. They they might respond by saying, well, how can we at the end of the day really be sure? How can we be certain? And they'd prefer to kind of just stay on the fence in that nice, comfortable area of being uncertain, that that middle ground limbo. Uh, Or maybe they'll, they'll deflect from that responsibility of searching the Scriptures and actually studying Jesus' words and seeing if they played out the way he said they would. And they'll deflect that by, by turning it around against you as a Christian and claiming that you are arrogant and that you, you are superior to everybody else. You believe yourself to be better than others because you're so sure that you're right and they're wrong. And so they remain in the middle, in limbo, perfectly satisfied to shrug their shoulders and say, well, we don't know. Can anybody really no. And the irony is that these are the, the same folks that would say, well, if God would just prove himself, then I would have no problem believing. And to those individuals, they will get the same response from God that these individuals did from Jesus when he responded to their, we don't know, with, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, that might sound harsh coming from Jesus, but in reality, he's saying, If you don't believe the words that I'm saying, why do you assume that you would suddenly believe some proof that I offer you? That's not going to do any good if if you are dismissive of my words and my teaching. 
So as Jesus engages with these, he certainly could have carried on that conversation a little bit longer, going back and forth about the authority that he had to teach in the temple that day or any day or, or in the synagogues. He could have, have strung them out, but, but Jesus is not one to waste his words. Knowing that his time here on earth was limited, even knowing that the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that their time too was limited, he redirected the conversation to what needed to happen, which was a conversation that addressed the real issue, their unbelief. He was more interested in changing their hearts than he was in somehow providing proof that they were demanding. And in order to do that, Jesus then told this parable. Here's his story. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. That's it, a pretty straightforward, a pretty simple and short parable. And whether you have kids of your own, whether you've ever been around kids, or if you were ever at one time a kid yourself, which I think is all of us, then we can find this parable relatable. This challenge of, of kids, or anybody, adults for that matter, that say they're going to do something and don't, versus saying they're not going to do something and then end up changing their mind. The son that, that Jesus talked about in this parable, the one that said that he would but would not, this became clear to this listeners, to Jesus' listeners, who he was. They, they actually, after Jesus asked his follow-up question in these verses, when he said, um, which of the two did what his father wanted, they showed that they knew the right answer. They showed that they knew it was the one who said, I will not, but then ended up doing the thing his father asked at the end of the day. And I suppose that, that makes sense because finally the father's will was accomplished. Now maybe that father, maybe dad had a little follow-up conversation with his son after the work was accomplished about telling him, by the way, don't ever tell me no again. A conversation that probably could happen a little more frequently than it does in our culture and society today. But at the end of the day, the son did what the father asked. Pretty different from the other son, who at the start, who at the outset, claims that he was going to do what the father asked of him, but then didn't. Which amplifies that disappointment even more. He would have been better off just like the other son saying, I'm not going to, and then not doing it. But once you say, I'm going to do it, then there is a level of expectation that is raised. And then only dashed, when that son didn't follow through. What was the application Jesus was making to these chief priests and the teachers of the law? We, we understand the relationship that Jesus had with them. They were familiar with his teaching. They knew what Jesus was telling people. They knew his message was following in the same vein as John the Baptist, which was basically repent and believe. They knew that. They didn't agree with it, but they knew it. And in fact, they saw themselves as the sons who were doing exactly what the Father wanted. 
They just thought that the way to a relationship with the Father was through the law, was through obedience, that that was how you please the Father. And so they made no bones about it. They showed, they demonstrated all their works of righteousness for everybody to see, thinking that was the way to get right with God. That wasn't, even if they didn't acknowledge what Jesus came to tell them, that, that what Jesus wanted from them was to believe that message of repent and place your faith and your trust in me. And so they thought they were the son that was doing the right thing, but Jesus reveals to them, exposes them as the son who actually in the end doesn't do the one thing that God wants to repent and believe. And then you have the other category or the group of people that, that Jesus brings up. He refers to them as the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And we can understand where they're coming from, that they would be represented by the son that would say, I will not, Father. Because understand their situation at that time as they looked at the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, all of the religious types, they looked at them and they said, there's no way we will ever measure up to that. We don't stand a chance. We are in an entirely different class of people. We are always going to be on the outside looking in. We can never be the son or the daughters that God wants. But then notice the difference of when Jesus came to them with that message of repent and believe. And they responded to it. They realized that was the only hope that they had. And that's what the gospel does. It, it realizes, it makes us realize we do have hope. The law doesn't offer hope. Obedience doesn't offer hope. Doing the right thing day in and day out doesn't offer anybody hope. Just more burden and guilt and weight. But when the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those on the outside looking in in society, when they saw that the way to rightness with God was simply based on repenting and acknowledging that they need Jesus as their Savior, that made all the difference, didn't it? They repented and they believed. And that's what, what Jesus was talking about when he explained then to the teachers and the elders, Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Those who appeared to be the son that was not interested in doing what God wanted at the end of the day did when they came to Jesus in repentance. Now, a parable like this we can see the application to the crowd that Jesus was talking to, those who were listening to him in that day. But, but now, I don't know in 2023 when the last time you found yourself surrounded by any chief priests, teachers of the law, if you've seen any of those, if that's the company that you keep. We don't really see them today, do we? Actually, we do. Actually, I'm looking at a room filled with them and I see one looking back at me every time that I look in the mirror to some degree. In its simplest understanding, how many times in our lives aren't we the son that says, I will, but then I don't? How many times have you come across, either in person or, or on social media, a request for prayers, and you were quick to comment below that and let the person know praying for you or, or put a prayer emoji, and you took the time 
to write that comment or to add that emoji, but you never took the time to actually pray the prayer that you said you would. And aren't we then the, the son who said, I will, but we didn't. And what about the, the friend who is in need, who is going through a, a difficult time, and we, we often will, will, as we understandably do, and, and genuine, I think, right? We, we ask, is there anything that I can do? How can I help? How can I serve? And then, when they give us a very specific way, that, uh, a need that they have, well, that, that doesn't work. I can't do that, or I don't have time for that, or it's inconvenient, or we drop the ball, or we forget about it. And who of us has not stepped up to, to volunteer or to serve or take on some responsibility knowing full well everything that is expected of us, everything that is asked of us, nodding our head in agreement saying, yes, I will do those things, only to find out that the way we carried out that position or that service was to excuse why we didn't get to it this week or month and to put it off and push it back another week, another month. We want to be the son who does the right thing, but so often we see we're the son who claims to do the Father's will only to fail to follow through. And it's not just, it's not just the outward actions. Another way that, that we fall short, the way that we're the wrong son in this parable, is when we do the right things, but we do them for the wrong reasons. Remember that the teachers of the law and the chief priests, they were doing the right things. They were on to something. God does care about how we live. He does want us to, to be righteous. He does call us to be holy. And they were concerned about holiness and obedience. And they were very sincere about it. But they were also sincerely wrong because they were doing it for the wrong reason. As I mentioned before, their understanding was that doing all of the right things in the right way, was how they got right with God. When God is more concerned about, I want to make sure that your heart is in the right place. That when you're doing the right things, the right reason is out of appreciation and gratitude for me. Not because you're trying to merit or earn something from me, but because your heart is overwhelmed by and filled with gratitude for what I have freely given you in Christ Jesus. And is that always the reason behind our doing what we do? We even talk about rather than joyfully jumping into an opportunity to step up and serve, we regretfully or resentfully talk about being roped into it because nobody else would do it. And wouldn't we be better off in those cases just being clear on the front end of that and, and saying, I will not, instead of pretending to go through the, the, the motions and doing it for all of the wrong reasons. God is not interested in his church being built up by service and acts of obedience that are done begrudgingly. And when we show up on Sunday mornings, doesn't it rather easily become something that is more about being seen than taking our gracious God up at his invitation to join him for another banquet where he longs to feed us the riches of his grace and forgiveness? And how often aren't the days sandwiched between Sundays treated by us as if that's our time off from the Christian thing? We'll show up on Sunday, but we'll check out during the week and, and only punch in on Sundays when we gather in God's house. 
Because God is more concerned about the outward acts and the obedience, right? As much as we want to be the right son, we see again and again how often we are the son that says, I will, I will, Father, only to fail to follow through. And what that shows us, dear friends, is how desperately in need we are of another son. Not either of the sons in the parable, but, but another son, a son who said, I will, Father, and did. The perfect son, our Savior Jesus. The Savior Jesus, who, who not only feigned sincerity, but followed through with it and was genuinely not only concerned with carrying out his Father's will, but actually did to a T. And a Jesus that is so confident of his work of salvation on our behalf that he even makes the offer to skeptics and non-believers to say, look, don't take my word for it unless my actions match my words. That's the invitation Jesus holds out to all people. He said that and John records it for us uh, in his gospel. Chapter 10, verse 37. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. Do not place your trust in me. Don't waste your time with me unless I do what I say I'm going to do. And in offering that invitation, Jesus is saying, there is no place for anybody to stay in the middle somewhere, on the fence in their relationship, in limbo. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. Jesus says, test my words. If my actions and my words match, then there's only one conclusion, and it is to trust in me and place your faith in me as the God I claim to be, the Savior I long to be for you and for all people. And Jesus ultimately points then to that final act of sacrifice as the proof. In his last hours here on earth, before he would go to the cross, he explained to his disciples the reason that Satan and his enemies were going to appear to overpower and have their way with Jesus was this reason in John chapter 14, verse 31, that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus not only cared about carrying out his Father's will, but he did it perfectly, with a perfect and sincere heart. Not begrudgingly, not because nobody else could step up and do it, but because his, he loved his Father with a perfect love and loves you and me with that same perfect love that drove him to carry out all of the rules and the regulations with perfect obedience that the teachers of the law and the chief priests never could. That you and I never could. And a perfect obedience that, that as we heard in our, our second reading this morning, allowed him to humble himself and become obedient to death, even death on a cross, to pay for all of our failures, all the times that we were either one son or the other. It doesn't really matter. They all fall short. But Jesus did not. And he covers us, washes us with his forgiveness, and gives us the assurance that he was the son, is the son that we could never be. And he is the only son, the Savior, that we need. And so as we reflect on that perfect son, the one who said, I will, Father, and the one who did for his Father and for us,
There is no room left for, I'm not sure. I just don't know. There's only room for us to place absolute certainty in Jesus' perfect sincerity and his perfect and holy life and death that bore that out for us. Amen.